Well, our text this morning is from the Old Testament book of Malachi, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 5. I invite you to turn there or launch your Bible there. And before I read it this morning for us, let me just say, give a a thumbnail sketch uh, before we dig in. Malachi is the last of 12 books in the Old Testament that are known as the Minor Prophets. And it is written in a very kind of unusual way. It's, it's a, like a diatribe or a, a dispute between God and those of, of his people who have become apathetic or antagonistic toward him. It's almost like overhearing an argument between a, a parent and a child. And like many of the prophetic writings, Malachi leans in and looks forward to the day of the Lord. Now, the, the phrase the day of the Lord is a phrase that was used to describe the great day of judgment and salvation. And you'll easily be able to hear this uh, as I read the text for us. So Math, excuse me, Malachi chapter 2, uh, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5, reads like this. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Have you ever gone through a season of life in which you found yourself to be cynical or overly cynical? To be cynical is to doubt the motives of others and to question their sincerity or goodness. This attitude is often accompanied by mistrust and scorn and pessimism. You could say cynicism is writ large over our cultural ethos today. We live in a time just laced with cynicism. We choose our news stations based on our political biases. And when someone states what they believe to be a fact, if we don't share the same opinion, we become cynical. Or we wonder about the motives of celebrities when they seem to be doing something good for the sake of others, but then they get a ton of PR when they do it. We become cynical of their motives. We're cynical about the motive of the doctor who may recommend an unnecessary test or the dentist who tells us we are grinding our teeth in our sleep so we need a four-figure solution, the real estate professional who tells us they can get top dollar for our house, and of course the contractor who tells us the project will be done in just a few weeks, maybe even ahead of schedule. Ask our neighbors behind us about that one. Cynicism could very well be a national epidemic. 
By the way, it is also very unhealthy. It results in high levels of stress, and cynical people often have a very difficult time maintaining close relationships, and they're challenging to live with. They ooze negativity and distrust, and they have a way of driving people away. Maya Angelou once said, there is nothing so pitiful as a young cynic because he has gone from knowing nothing to believing nothing. You can just hear the cynicism dripping from this text that I just read. It begins with Israel actually questioning the goodness and the justice of God. But thanks be to God, it does move to a place of hope if we have ears to hear the hope in the message. And so here's what I'd like for us to do this morning. I'd like for us to look a little bit at the question and then the answer. And then we need to talk about the bad and the good news. Let's talk about the motive behind the question for a moment. Why did Israel question the goodness and the justice of God? Some have said that the people had seen so much evil and God not doing anything about it in their view that they wondered then if God was really a good God. How could God allow such evil to go on and not punish it? This motive has a feel of of righteous indignation. Uh, Perhaps some of you have heard the story of Elie Wiesel, the late author and Holocaust survivor. He writes in his book, Night, of the hanging of two men and how he watched the hanging of two men and a boy. And he writes that he saw that the two men die rather quickly, but the boy lingered between life and death for about 30 minutes. And Wiesel writes about hearing this older gentleman behind him asking the question, for God's sake, where is God? Now that would be a question with righteous sense of indignation. And it would be honest lamentation, seeing a horrible injustice and wondering why God is allowing it. In my view, it is not cynical to question why God allows some things to happen, and it can be an act of devotion if we do so with an open and trusting heart. You see, we may not know why God allows some things to happen, but in faith we can believe that God will be just in the way that God handles evildoers and that God will respond in the midst of suffering that can sometimes seem random to us. So that's one motive, maybe, that God was being questioned because of the sense of of righteous indignation for, for seeing all the evil around. Or it could be that the motive for questioning God's goodness and justice was a little more self-serving than that. Israel had become apathetic in her relationship with God. She put worship and sacrifice on autopilot, and they were just going through the rituals and the motions. And so the motive is more like, hey, God is allowing all this evil and justice to happen. It doesn't matter if then we are also evil and unjust. God maybe doesn't really care about the sacrifices. God maybe doesn't care about our holiness. Or maybe it's a combination of the two. As a nation, as I mentioned earlier, Israel had suffered under the hands of other nations. And perhaps this kind of suffering led to the sense of apathy and antipathy toward God. Either way, the text tells us that their complaint against God wearied him. It wearied him. Now, this does not mean that God was physically weary 
like we might be after a long day of manual labor, but maybe we could use the word, the questions frustrated God. When my siblings and I would misbehave and push one of my mom's buttons, she would finally say something along the lines of, I'm sick and tired of that behavior. Now, my mother looked well-rested, and she didn't look unhealthy, so she wasn't sick and tired, but she was weary of our behavior. It was actually my little brother's fault, I'm (laughs) convinced to this day. So there's the question, though. They question God's goodness and justice, and here comes God's answer in chapter 3, verse 1. God tells them that essentially he is not asleep at the wheel. And actually God tells them that he will send two messengers, one to prepare the way, and then the Lord himself will come. And this is leaning forward to the ministries of of John the Baptist and Jesus, as we've been looking at over the last several weeks. But God answered their question. Let's ponder that reality for a moment. I think there are some glimpses of God's character that we can sometimes see in unusual places in Scripture. Israel was behaving like a stubborn, bratty child. God could have turned his back on the question and completely ignored her for the ultimate silent treatment. But God answered. God answered her. And when God answers us, God is revealing something about his sovereignty and character. And it was as as if God was saying to them, you think I've gone asleep on the story, but I will intervene. I will intervene to deal with the mess humankind has made, and I will intervene in my way and in my time. Part of the journey of faith is learning to trust God in the waiting, isn't it? Are you waiting for something this morning? Maybe you're waiting for a cure. Maybe you're waiting for God to provide a spouse. Maybe you're waiting for a job. Or maybe you're waiting not to have a job and to retire one day. It could be easy to give up on God or to question God's goodness. Let me encourage you to stay tethered to God in the waiting He will reveal all you need in your journey. He will give you all you need to wait faithfully. He may not always give you the answers verbatim, but he will give you what you need to wait faithfully. And we may not always understand why God allows things to happen. We may not always understand God's timing and the way he deals with humankind, but we can trust God to be loving and just and good. One of the passages in the Bible that gives us a glimpse of God's heart is found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And the backstory on this passage is that Peter is writing to first-generation Christians. They had risked life and limb to follow Jesus. And they remembered that Jesus promised them that he would return one day, that he would return one day and make everything right that he would come back one day and he would deal with those who were persecuting their family members and their friends. And now this first generation of Christians, they were dying off and they were starting to ask the question, hey, he said he was coming back, but he's not back. What's the deal here? And then Peter reminds them, 
But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And Peter goes on to describe the day of the Lord and encourages his readers not to be on the other side or the wrong side of judgment, but to pursue holiness, which leads us to the bad news and the good news. Which one do you want first? Let's start with the bad news. God takes center stage here. And he says, he is going to put the people on trial. Now, we're, our town's kind of used to trials lately, aren't we? Well, God takes center stage, and he's going to put the people on trial. And by the way, he's going to be the judge and the jury. And take a look at the actions that God says he will testify against. He will testify against the sorcerers, those who practice the dark side of, of spirituality. He will testify against adulterers, those who break the vows of covenant marriage, which is the foundation of culture. He will testify against perjurers, those who lie under oath. This is another threat to the bonds of trust and civility in a society and lying in general. Truth-telling is crucial for the strength of a family, a community, and a nation. Then the list of offenses turns outward. Those who defraud laborers and cheat them out of their wages. A laborer was extremely vulnerable in the Jewish culture. They usually didn't own land, and in some ways they actually had less protection than a servant. They were not a landowner, which is how they built wealth or one would build wealth. And servants were usually protected by the, their, their employees or their owners. Anyone who cheats someone out of a day's pay, the Lord says, will face his judgment. People who take advantage of the laborer. Or those who oppress widows and orphans. Widows and orphans were also vulnerable. When a woman married a man, she left the care and support of her father to join the family of her husband. If he died, she was not guaranteed continued support from her father or the alien or the immigrant. Again, another landless class of people who were residing in Israel because they left their home country for some reason or another. The Bible doesn't say what the reason needed to, needed to be. It simply states that God's people are to have compassion and even more that the immigrant was to be protected under Israelite law. The Bible tells us that if the people will not champion the cause of the powerless, God will. He is Father. He is Provider. And God mandated that certain tithes were to be given to take care of those people. And this is why it is encoded in, Israeli, in, in, in the laws of Israel. That's interesting. When we read Malachi 3, we often go to the part about the tithe and bring your tithe into the storehouse. And often when preachers talk about bringing your tithe into the storehouse, they talk about bringing your 10% into the, into the church so that God's work can be done. But in the life of Israel, the tithe was actually 30, 40%. And there were tithes to protect and to support the poor and to feed the hungry and to feed and to take care of the immigrant. And so now we see here, bring your tithe. Because you, Israel, you're not taking care 
of the most vulnerable in society, and I have to use my laws to take care of them. God is saying, I will testify against those who take advantage of the most vulnerable in our society. Now, there's a gripping question in verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? Wow, that's a gripping question. Who can endure the day of judgment? Here's the bad news. No one. No one. No one can stand. We may not have committed those exact offenses before the Lord, but no one is without sin. And no one can face the day of judgment on their own. We have all sinned and we all fall short of God's standards of holiness. And so you or I may not have committed those sins listed, but those were just representative. There are a lot more, right? And we can probably find ourselves in some of the sins listed in Scripture. So where's the good news? If we can't stand on the day of judgment, none of us, where's the good news? The passage says the messenger will come like a refiner and a launderer. A launderer would use a strong type of soap to clean the fabric. The refiner would hold the silver in the fire long enough to burn out all the impurities. How would a refiner know when the silver was completely pure and when the silver was ready? The refiner would take that piece of silver on the other end of the, of the rod and hold it up to his face and when the refiner could begin to see his image, that's when the silver was ready. And so God is going to refine us. God is going to purify us until God can see his image in us. That refinement may come in the form of discipline. It may come in the form of trials. It may come in ways that we don't expect it, but we can know whatever God allows to come our way, God will use to refine us to look like his character in the world around us. Sometimes the way God disciplines us or the things God allows in our lives to test and strengthen us, they don't always feel good or positive in the moment. But if we trust him and turn to him, he will use the fire of those trials to bring about his image in our lives. By the way, that image of the refiner, the only way, the only way that refiner can complete his work successfully is to be on the other end of that rod, right? Is to be right there on the other end in the fire with us. I love this little work, this little uh, word here, when it says the refiner will sit. That means the refiner is going to stay a while. No drive-by refinement happens in the Christian life. It takes a while. But the refiner is there with us next to the fire as we endure the trials of life. So here's the really good news. If we have ears to hear. This idea that God is going to refine and cleanse us tells us that God does not come to us to do away with us. Rather, God comes to restore us and to renew us 
and to make us how he meant us to be in the world. If God wanted to do away with us, God wouldn't waste his time refining us and purifying us. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. And we have a part to play in that restoration. We have to yield our hearts and submit to the refining work of the Savior. The Savior. The one who came and went through the ultimate fire the ultimate trial of the cross, so that we would be spared and so that we would be saved. This is the messenger of Malachi. This is the suffering servant of Isaiah. This is Jesus. The cynic scoffs at him. The skeptic questions him. The indifferent shrug shrug their shoulders at him. The apathetic tries to placate him with heartless worship, but those who know they need his salvation and his grace, they turn to him, they love him, they follow him, and they serve him. Will you open your heart to the refiner today in a new way? He is your good news. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for coming into our lives and working your will as only you can. Lord God, we may not always understand the way you work, and we may not always understand the difficulties and the trials and the different twists and turns on the journey. But Lord, help us to turn to you with believing hearts, trusting you to be good and loving and merciful. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.